and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 83. You got a twofer this week. I was uh, I was not able to produce a podcast last week, so I give you two in your face this week. And I'm so happy to be able to bring, uh, you know, to, to spend this week talking about issues of war. Uh, obviously, you, well, if you're, if you're new to the show, you haven't heard any episodes. But if you heard the previous episode, my conversation with Kathy Kelly, one of the, I think, leading anti-war voices, peace activists we have in the U.S. and really in the world in general. So uh, if you really enjoyed that conversation, you enjoyed those perspectives, I'm so happy to be able to bring another, um, what can I what, what can I say, champion of, of peace work, somebody whose work I've been following for a long, long time, whose uh, work I respect immensely and... Uh, you know, whose commitment to issues of peace and justice and the anti-war, upholding the anti-war position, I think is 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 really laudable, particularly given the times we're living in. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about David Swanson. David Swanson is a blogger, an author, an activist. You can follow his work on the website warisacrime.org. If you don't know David, you're about to meet him. One of the fiercest voices for peace anywhere. Uh, David Swanson, welcome back to Counter punch radio hey eric great to be here so david we have a limited amount of time and just so much war to discuss and this is of course the tragedy of the time that we're living in and i want to start off our conversation by uh really kind of jumping into some contemporary uh issues and specifically i just want to ask you does it feel like war fever to you? Like we've like we've reached a point of escalation because of course throughout the Bush era and the Obama era we were accustomed to war, various types of wars, large-scale wars, small-scale wars, overt, covert, but it does feel to me at least like we're seeing a a, a new phase of the war making from the empire. What's your take on it? Well, I think that's right. I think when you allow someone like George W. Bush to do everything he did with no consequences, uh, you are going to see whoever comes after him, and it was Barack Obama, expand those powers, expand the bases, expand the spending, expand the, the presidential prerogatives when it comes to war. Uh, and when there, are, there there's no restraint and no consequences for any of that, and you have the invention of a whole new form of war in, in drone warfare, uh, and nobody bats an eye, uh, and you know torture and execution and lawless imprisonment and warrantless spine and all the rest of it is made into acceptable policy choices uh, rather than felonies, uh, you know, the guy who comes next is going to be worse. And and when you have, you know, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump as your two choices, uh, you know things are going to get worse. Uh, when you have a, a primary debate among the Republicans where one of the moderators asks, are you willing to kill thousands of innocent children as part of your basic duties, you know things are going to get worse. And you know, people tell me Donald Trump flipped. He was pro-peace and he turned out to be pro-war. Well, you know, he was against particular wars or pretended to be and even pretended to have been against uh, invading Iraq when he was for it. Uh, but he was always during the campaign for more military spending, which contrary to popular and bizarre and idiosyncratic American belief that people in other countries do not share, when you spend more on the military, you get more wars, not fewer wars. Uh, he was for killing their families. He was for stealing 
stealing their oil. Uh, I mean, this was a, an insane militarist who seemed to have the silver lining of not hating Russia or of wanting for whatever corrupt reasons or good reasons to be friendlier toward Russia. Well, the, you know, the Democrats and the establishment in Washington blew that all to hell. I mean, that was their top priority to make him hate Russia, to make to build up hostility toward Russia. So that, you know, possible silver lining uh, is gone. And now, uh, as I predicted during the campaign and, and predict even more, uh, now, Donald Trump has discovered that the way to get the media to love him, the way to get the attention he lives off of uh, is to bomb stuff, that he's going to get much more praise and attention from the media by using the Pentagon than by not using it. Uh, and this is the danger that, you know, he's figured out he, the bigger bomb he drops, the the more love he gets uh, from the television set that he watches all day. Uh, and, and, you know, by the time the peace movement has put together its, you know, statements about uh, a little bombing in Syria that was rather trivial compared to the ongoing bombing of Syria and Iraq by Trump and Obama before him, uh, you know, he's gone off and, and dropped the biggest bomb he could on Afghanistan and threatened North Korea. Uh, so we, we really have to start opposing the entire institution of war because uh, this guy's going to have bombed somewhere else by the time you, you start objecting to one place he's bombing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, I, I want to return to a point that you were making that I think is really critical and that has to do with the campaign and the facade of, um, we can't really call it, you know, uh, peacenik, but certainly the facade of anti-interventionism, uh, of isolationism, of these type of ideas. I mean, that the, the very fact that he said those things to varying degrees throughout the campaign, that's fine. That's all fine and good. But he also said in those very same debates and in those very same uh, you know, television appearances that he wanted to do things like put 30,000 troops into Syria to fight against so-called you know, ISIS, that he wanted to expand the military, that he wanted to quote-unquote modernize it, and all of these things that he was saying, which was simultaneous to this illusion of him being a peace candidate or something like this. And that reminded me, and I have to say it, in 2008, when everybody was going gaga over Obama, and he said on stage in Chicago at the debate with Kucinich and all the others on the stage that he was prepared to bomb Afghanistan and to bomb Pakistan, and that he wouldn't even consult their governments if he had to, you know, if he had to do it. And yet they didn't hear it because they were projecting onto the candidate. I think the exact same thing happened with Trump, though maybe we could say that Trump is the inverse hope and change. Yeah, I, I think Obama was very clear in interviews with newspapers as opposed to speeches at rallies uh, that he wanted a bigger military, a more expanded, uh, bigger global presence, more bases in more places, that he wanted more bombs on Pakistan, that he wanted to escalate in Afghanistan for no uh, apparent reason other than to contrast it with Iraq and claim that he was for a good war and yeah. against a bad war. Uh, and, and he kept all those promises. He broke – I'd say he broke 90 percent of his campaign promises, uh, but he kept all of the 
increase the militarism promises. Uh, Donald Trump, you know, you knew with Hillary Clinton you were going to get more war. She was consistently and explicitly promising more wars and bigger wars. Uh, so, you know, that was clear. With Donald Trump, because he would say one thing and its opposite in the same breath, and he would say he, you know, he would pretend to have been against wars, he would say he was against wars, he would say uh, he was against interventions and, and nation building, sort of echoing George W. Bush's campaign, or he was against those things, and, and look what he did. Uh, it was possible to, to have some doubts, to say, well, who knows what in the world we're going to get with him, and to sort of wish for for the best, you know, and and, and a lot of people think that there's, there's going to be some difference between the Democrat and the Republican, so if Hillary Clinton is for something, well, Donald Trump must be against it, uh, and, and that really wasn't the case. It was it was very clear that whichever one you got, you were going to get more wars. Uh, you know, do we have a do we have a, a war fever, or is everybody for war now? Uh, I, I don't think so. I, I think you know part of the problem is that you know Donald Trump uh, bombs someplace in, in Syria with lots of missiles uh, all at once and makes a big stink about it, whereas the military under Donald Trump and Obama before him has been, you know, killing thousands of people with missiles in Syria and Iraq on a routine basis. Uh, and then the next day, people are asked by the pollsters, do you support this or not? And they say, oh, yes, we support it, but we don't want any more of it, which is, you know, a very different answer from, you know, let's have World War Three. Let's continue risking that. Uh, whereas four years ago, when Obama wanted to bomb the hell out of Syria, uh, the pollsters asked, should he do it before he had a chance to do it? Uh, and people said no. Uh, you know, people are so obedient. People are so deferential. They're, they're going to claim to have been for something once it's happened. Uh, but do they want more of it? I, I don't think there's evidence for that. In fact, the, the public wants, on average, the military budget cut by $41 billion, where Trump wants it increased by $54 billion. So there's a 94-something billion dollar gap there. Yeah, that's right. And and it's clear that uh, the way that Trump is using war and using military, you know, the military in uh, not that it's necessarily all that different from uh, administrations that came before him, but one of the things that uh, Kathy Kelly was talking about in the in, in the previous episode, and I of course agree, is the that the mask has really come off. That that, that the genteel sort of you know proper and uh, you know upstanding forms of imperialism, militarism, and murder that uh, Obama embodied. That that's now this naked transparent, imperialistic, neo-colonial uh, kind of uh, CEO of Empire Inc. in Donald Trump. And the question is, is that really a substantive change or is that really a stylistic change? Yeah, well, it's, it's some of each. It's mostly rhetorical and stylistic, and it's mostly, as you alluded to earlier, a question of the eyes of the beholder, uh, because, you know, Obama was bombing eight nations at a time. I was going around giving speeches, unable to find anyone in large auditoriums in the United States who could name them, uh, and most people hadn't heard about it, and most people denied it was happening. 
<clears throat> excuse me, when when Barack Obama, you know, prior to his second election campaign, went and bragged to the New York Times uh, that he goes through a list of men, women, and children on Tuesdays, picking whom to have murdered with drones. Well, well, people have managed not to hear about that to this day, uh, and, and so people are now hearing that the president kills people with drones, which is, you know, a rhetorical difference and a difference in the in the ears of the hearer. But also Donald Trump is actually murdering people at four or five times Obama's clip. Uh, you are hearing now about some of these wars that Obama got started in part because it's Trump's face, in part because they're being escalated, in part because the catastrophes have worsened. You have millions of people on the edge of starvation in Yemen as a result of, of years of disastrous drone war and then massive Saudi slash U.S. bombing war on Yemen. Uh, and it's coming to a head and Trump is proposing to make everything worse. Uh, and so I think it's a it's a confluence of of factors here. Um, but I think a big one is, you know, is Trump's lack of professional, appropriate diplomatic rhetoric, his stupidity, his buffoonery, his hostility. Uh, and so the question is, with Trump's face on the wars, with Trump's face on those military bases in 175 countries, what will the world do? What will we in the United States do to, to resist it? And what will the world do to resist it? You would think that, you know, if keeping U.S. military bases in your country is bowing down before the, the odious Donald Trump, that would be motivation to kick them out. Uh, you know, it doesn't immediately seem to be. Uh, it seems that the, the structures and the carrots and the sticks that, that have these things in place uh, are, are not so easily dislodged. I definitely agree with that. And I think one of the other qualitative differences that obviously really needs to factor into how we think about it is the fact that unlike with uh, with with Bill Clinton and with George W. Bush and to some degree Obama, at least in the early part of his presidency, now the situation globally is, is I think, somewhat different uh, in the sense that there is a Russia directly involved in Syria backing uh, the Syrian government. There is a China that is asserting itself in the South China Sea and among its relations with its neighbors. Uh, in other words, that the global political and geopolitical calculus has, has changed to some degree such that I think the danger level of U.S. belligerence, of U.S. warmongering, and of U.S. imperialism, I think it risks larger regional and potentially global conflicts and with Trump at the helm that certainly at least for me is cause for concern uh, I, I think that's right I don't think it's the whole story I mean I don't think it's black and white and a, and a total 180 shift I, I think that under Obama you had the United States facilitate a violent coup in Ukraine uh, expand NATO right to Russia's borders put a missile so-called defense base, base in Romania and start construction on one in Poland uh, move more US troops into Eastern Europe than had been seen since World War II uh, you had the the U.S. Navy uh, through South Korea put a major base on Jeju Island. Uh, you had incidents with the Philippines in the in the South China Sea. So it's, it's not all brand new, but Absolutely. it's escalated. It's it's exacerbated. 
plus it has Trump's face and rhetoric and Trump's lack of diplomacy uh, with Russia, on top of which I think a major factor, an additional major factor making everything worse, is that you have this McCarthyism among the Democrats and the establishment in Washington just badgering Trump uh, and, and accepting nothing short of, of all-out uh, hostility toward Russia, uh, or he will be denounced as a as a puppet of Putin. Uh, you know, Obama faced an establishment that was more hostile toward Russia than he was and wanted to sell more weapons than he did, uh, but he didn't face this this sort of uh, of stick with which uh, Trump has been beaten over the head. Absolutely, I definitely agree. And then I would also add that uh, while while U.S. wars have you know from time immemorial seemingly been about uh, you know material resources, uh, resource extraction, things like that. Again, with Trump, this is now totally transparent. Wherein the State Department is literally headed by Exxon Mobil, by Rex Tillerson uh, of Exxon Mobil. And so when Rex Tillerson or or Donald Trump meets with Xi Jinping and their Chinese counterparts and they talk about things like the South China Sea, it's always going to be right there up front that there is the question of oil, gas, uh, you know, resources, things like that, which, again, always on the table with the United States, certainly for uh, Cheney and Halliburton and the Bush crew and uh, similarly for Obama. But again, it's this sort of more transparently corporate, uh, you know, exploitative, extractive resources, I think that that's really uh, something unique. I think so. I, I mean, certainly in terms of Trump's background and the context and his business interests and the level of open corruption, uh, and not to mention, you know, putting people in charge of each department who want to destroy that department but his you know he and his daughters his daughter getting uh patents from china as they meet with china you know making profits from china as they deal with china you know in blatant violation of the u.s constitution and domestically you know tax breaks and and deals from state governments and the federal government itself a blatant violation of the constitution uh and and in a pass you know we've established through the not holding his predecessor Predecessors accountable that you can do anything other than have sex and not be held accountable. Uh, Trump Trump owns stock. Last we heard, 2015, last we saw, he owns stock in the companies that make the missiles that he sends into airstrips in Syria and everywhere else. So you know he's literally making a, a personal profit. Uh, his his budget is also worse and more warlike than we have seen at least since Ronald Reagan. Over 60 percent he's proposing of discretionary spending should go to militarism. Uh, you know, and and with uh, the expectation of an of an additional off the books uh, supplemental bill to come next year, uh, maybe 65 percent. Uh, you know, we're going to see records, not just in amount of spending, but percentage as he's proposing to move money from everything else into the military. Uh, you know, so it's it's a level of, of militarism and uh, a, a brutality and stupidity of rhetoric around it uh, that we haven't seen before, and 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 the development that began under Obama and continues of the U.S. military developing new nuclear weapons, smaller and supposedly "quote unquote" more usable nuclear weapons, even as the rest of the world is moving to ban nuclear weapons, uh, and, and you've put them in the hands 
of a guy who will apparently uh, drop a bomb on Afghanistan because he's having dinner and chocolate cake with the with the president of China or or, you know, blow up people in in Syria because his daughter asks him to. I mean, this is incredibly dangerous uh you know no this was the one thing that people who wrote the u.s constitution got right you know these these aristocratic white male slave owners who got uh, i'm sorry to say most everything wrong got this right you don't let a single person have those kinds of powers even with the the flimsy little weaponry that existed back then much less with weaponry that can destroy the earth. Yeah, exactly. And one of the other things, speaking of destroying the earth, that that really does need to be taken into account is what I what I believe to be the extraordinary danger that Trump and the Trump administration poses vis-a-vis climate change, particularly given uh, the indicators that uh, we're seeing in in recent studies in the Arctic, in the Antarctic, uh, with the uh, the the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef, the acidification of the oceans, all. All of these uh, climate change related, uh, uh, you know, changes that we're seeing, uh, that is certainly going to accelerate. And now we have a president who, even worse than Obama, who was no friend of the environment, no friend of the, uh, uh, you know, climate change activist movement, no friend, you know, friend of fracking rather than of environmentalism. But now we have Trump, which is orders of magnitude worse, where you literally have climate change deniers in charge of the EPA, destroying the EPA, where you have an attack on scientists, an attack on research and data and all of these things. So another example where Trump is simultaneously continuing policies, but escalating them in a very dangerous way. Uh, I agree. And I see the anti-war movement and the environmental movement as intimately interlocked and inseparable. The the military is the greatest destroyer of the climate and waterways and earth uh, that we've got. Uh, and the wars are fought largely over the fossil fuels with which to further destroy the earth. Uh, I think people should, uh, if they're able on Earth Day, take part in a march for science, uh, not for any reckless uh, militarized science and not for fixing climate change by sticking stuff into the air, as Harvard scientists are proposing, uh, but for recognition of the need to be fact-based in our understanding and bring the bring the civil statement on violence, uh, the scientists' statement from back in the 80s that we are not destined for war and violence and destruction. It's not in our genes. It's a cultural choice. Uh, and then the next week, the following Saturday, the 29th, uh, go to the climate march in Washington, D.C. or uh, your local climate march and understand that peace is part of it. You can you can go to peace.peoplesclimate.org for the peace part of the People's Climate March. Uh, we're going to have a peace rally at 11 o'clock there in Washington, D.C. and a march that will join several other marches for a unified rally at the end. Uh, and we really are taking on one and the same monster uh, in what Dr. King 50 years ago called militarism and extreme materialism, not to mention racism. Uh, it, it is all part of a package of greed and destruction and irresponsibility uh, and corruption of public officials uh, that we need to confront uh, with, with equal unified strength. 
Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And again, I think one of the key points that really needs to be hammered home here is that we, meaning those of us who want to see peace, who want to bring an end to these wars, who want to address these issues, we really do have a responsibility. And and this is one of the things that is so difficult to, you know, to to, to swallow, particularly, you know, for for me, speaking for myself, you know, my, my political education really came with the beginning of the movement against the war in Iraq in 2000, 2002 and, uh, of course, and into 2003. And what we had at that time were so far back from even that, that uh, building a movement, we are, in a sense, building from scratch. And, you know, we can't necessarily put it all on Obama, though Obama was certainly one of the major um, uh, forces that undermined an anti-war movement. Um, but my question to you, David, and I know we're running out of time here, but my question to you is about building or maybe rebuilding an anti-war movement, but also a movement to address climate change, a movement to uh, address a number of other issues. And in linking these issues together and getting away from the pitfalls that the left so often uh, finds itself in uh, with single-issue politics, single-issue activism, and instead seeing all of these things as intimately connected and really inseparable. Yeah, I, I would recommend another event coming up this summer called Democracy Convention. You can go to democracyconvention.org. It's going to have at least 10 different conferences, and a group that I'm the director of World Beyond War is organizing one on peace and democracy. But people are going to interact and build connections between these different movements, which is something uh, we're trying to do. Again, with the People's Climate March, uh, we need to be united uh, because the, the, the stripping away of our rights uh, is intimately connected with these wars, the, the destruction of our economy, the uh, endangerment of our security, uh, the destruction of the environment. I mean, these are all connected, uh, and it is the same players that are, that are part of the destructive force on the other side here. We need to be united and globally united, not uh, isolated in a little nation, which is something that our corporate opponents are not, uh, and, and not divided by parties. You know, drop the partisanship uh, and, and get involved in principled activism uh, that holds politicians accountable equally, regardless of their partisan identity. Uh, and we will be much stronger and all the parties, uh, including whichever one you're in love with, will be improved uh, as a result. Yeah, and and the other point that I just want to make, and I, I really do want to get your take on this as well, is a recognition among progressives and, and leftists, socialists, communists, anarchists, whatever, anybody who sees themselves as, uh, you know, on the progressive left side of the spectrum, that we should recognize that – we have a we have a historical responsibility to really build up this movement because at the very time that we're struggling to do that we do see the far right getting much more organized the far right to a large extent uh, uh, seeing that it has in many ways a political expression in the White House that it has a political expression in some of the forces that are taking over governments in Europe or uh, building you know building their 
coalitions in Europe. The far right is on the rise. Fascism is on the rise. And I do think that we need to keep in mind a historical perspective and the responsibility that has fallen on us to not only challenge that, uh, you know, intellectually and, and, and politically and so forth, but to outpace it in terms of our organizing. We absolutely do need to do that, and it is an uphill struggle, but it is not impossible, and engaging in it is much more satisfying than sitting by and and bemoaning its absence. Uh, So we have to work on that, and we have to build uncomfortably large coalitions with people that we agree with on certain things but not everything. And at the same time, we have to build a a movement with a coherent vision of where we're going, uh, which means that we can't just be – progressive on everything but war. Uh, you know, we can't be against racism and in favor of, of bombing dark-skinned countries and demonizing Muslims. We, we, we have to address these evils as a whole uh, with a coherent message uh, of, of peace and justice and, and understanding domestically and in foreign affairs. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we should recognize our strength. We should recognize that in public opinion, in many ways, we are nowhere near as weak as we are in terms of, of representation in government and corporate power and, and media voices. Uh, but we, we have an uphill struggle uh, and we have to, we have to organize as, as people do for moments when refugees are threatened in airports and then build it into something stronger that creates its own momentum and escalates as a movement uh, with nonviolence and and coherently recognizing the roots of the problem that, you know, don't just be uh, addressing the concerns of refugees, but also stop creating more refugees by bombing foreign countries. Uh, You know, it's it's a project uh, that will occupy us as long as we live. Uh, It is a a project that we can certainly succeed at. Uh, There are no guarantees but we have a moral responsibility to give it our best shot. That's absolutely right. And and again, one of the other points that I always stress to people, uh, particularly younger people, if they ever ask me, you know, about activism, about things that they should be doing, you know, I will say I would say all of the things that you just said about building a cohesive movement about about maintaining, you know, these very large coalitions when it's appropriate and when it's necessary. But I also stress that. Activism is not merely about being part of a of a broad national movement. It's also about engaging in your own community in bringing these issues to the forefront in your community. And it's not only issues of war and peace, because sometimes for for you know for for many people that can feel remote. But the but making the connection between those wars that are happening abroad and the poisoning of people in Flint, Michigan, or the destruction of your public schools in you know in in Ohio or the attack on, uh, you know, uh, uh, service workers in California or whatever, whatever the local struggles are, the building of movements locally, that then is expanded out into the national and into the international stage. And I think that too often we get a little bit tunnel visioned about what it means to build a movement and forget that part of the movement building is working in our communities. 
Uh, yes, very well said. I couldn't agree more. Uh, the, the connections are there. Uh, you, you wouldn't have uh, police treating you as an enemy and armed for war uh, in the way that you do without the wars. Uh, you wouldn't have the lack of funds uh, that other countries have for useful projects if the funds weren't all going to the wars. Uh, you know, so we, we have to we have to use the power we have, the representation we have in local governments to to put pressure on higher levels of government. We have to organize locally to to find better, more sustainable, more peaceful, more inclusive ways of living and set examples for other localities. And and we have to build a, a cross borders, uh, sister city relationships and sister organization relationships uh, that reach beyond national borders and national identities. Uh, if we're going to save this little planet uh, from this this illness uh, known as nationalism, yeah, and, and and again, I mean, the history of our of of our activism of recent decades, I think, bears that out. I mean, if you go back to the 1980s and the delegations that would go to Central America at the time that the United States was funding Contra wars and and fascist dictatorships and all of the rest of that, you had activists who were doing precisely that kind of work, or going to Iraq, or going to Afghanistan, or whatever. But at the same time, not everybody can do that. Other people can bring other things to the table. And it is about leveraging our talents, our abilities, our, you know, for lack of a better word, and I hate to say it, but our uh, capital, that is our political capital. Uh, I think all of that is important because, again, if you're addressing people's needs on an intimate and on a practical level, that's where you can then engage them in broader political discussion, political education, and political organizing. I I, I really see these things as as totally uh, intimately linked peace activism, economic justice activism, and the development of independent economic infrastructure in the communities. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. It's part of why I'm going to Russia in a couple of weeks, and obviously not everybody can go to Russia, but uh, when I get back, you can invite me to come tell you what I saw over there. I want to thank you, David Swanson, for, for coming on the program, for uh, really all of the work that you do. It's 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 really, I think, uh, important, and uh, we really are thankful for the kind of uh, voice that you have really brought to the anti-war movement. Again, David Swanson, warisacrime.org. Go to the website, pick up his books, follow the, uh, follow the website and, and all of his work. David Swanson, thanks for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you, Eric. Keep up the good work. Listeners, thank you as always. Speak to you again next week.